Hi everybody and welcome back to the Dark Histories podcast. Hope everybody is well. As always, thank you again for the massive support shown on previous episodes. It is greatly appreciated. I can't believe the podcast is at episode 10 already. So, episode 10, I will talk about a mystery that has endured the test of time. A mystery that has refused to be solved. And one of history's greatest mysteries... Sorry, I couldn't help but rhyme that sentence. And that is the colony of Roanoke. So without further ado, please sit back, relax, for more Dark History. When Queen Elizabeth I decided that she wanted to colonise as much of America south of Newfoundland, She asked her favourite nobleman, Sir Walter Raleigh, to make this happen. Sorry, just going off on a tangent here. But I do find it funny how the Queen decided, you know what, I want to colonise that land and sod everyone else that's there, it's mine. Ah, (laughs) colonialism, such a terrible time. Anyway, back to the story. In something, in something that sounds like an ominous furry tale, Raleigh was given seven years to set up a colony, or he would lose his royal exclusivity. The first attempt happened in 1584. Raleigh had got his funding together and sent a reconnaissance mission to North America. When these men landed on the Outer Bank in North Carolina, they were met by the natives. And the first attempt started pretty well. The settlers and the natives built good relationships, and the natives even invited the settlers back to their village, which was situated on Roanoke Island. Just off the North Carolina coast, the natives and the settlers, they would share trade. The natives would teach them to hunt and things they would need to know for living in the new land. The first settlers learned to coexist with the tribe on the island. So after a month, the first expedition was a resounding success. The possibility of colonising America was exciting to the settlers. So, they packed up and sailed back to England and shared their findings with Sir Walter, which he then immediately set about getting funding and people to go to America full-time and begin a new colony. By 1585, everything was in place. He sent 600 men with seven ships and enough supplies to last the group a year. But when they landed in America, the colonists' flagship run aground, with all their supplies going into the sea. Decisions were made, and 500 men were sent back to England, and 100 stayed. These settlers went to the natives and asked could they settle on Roanoke Island, which the natives allowed. Everything was going off without a hitch. The natives were helping them and being generous, but still, they needed supplies. The 500 men who went back to England were supposed to tell Raleigh what had happened and send more men and supplies by the winter. But this didn't happen because the Queen wouldn't allow it. So the colony was heavily reliant on the tribe's generosity. This is when tensions began and the leaders of each side began to distrust each other. So the natives decided instead of bloodshed, we'll leave the island and go to the mainland and give the settlers Roanoke Island. But the settlers saw this as them going to the mainland to gain alliances against them. So under the leadership of Ralph Lane, who was a bit of a tosser really, crossed the water on a preemptive strike and wiped out the tribe that had helped them. After this, paranoia is at fever pitch among the settlers, because now they have no help, no supplies, and if another tribe finds out, they are doomed. I mean, if you ask me, 
the doomed anyway, taking a hundred men. How are you supposed to thrive if you get my drift? Alas, the settlers saw England bound ships and jumped aboard. Well, 97 of them did. Three of them were left on the island because they didn't evacuate in time. Lane really was a tosser. The funny thing was though, Sir Walter Raleigh got permission to send a supply ship which left the day after the mass evacuation. And in a couple of days, it was at Roanoke Island, but they found no sign of the three men and the colony was abandoned, so they left. After a couple of weeks, another ship landed, saw the colony abandoned and decided this was crown land and put 15 men to defend it. But it would be months before anyone went back to Roanoke and these poor men were hung out to dry by a man named John White. More about him soon. Unfortunately, the attempts didn't end there. After Lane's colonists returned to England in 1586, Sir Walter Raleigh, who had the land patent for a proposed English colony of Virginia, which was seen as a more fertile and sustainable land, tasked John White with the job of organising a new settlement in the Chesapeake Bay area, one of which would be self-sustaining and which would include women and children. During 1586, White was able to persuade 113 prospective colonists to join Raleigh's expedition. Within the group were White's daughter, Eleanor, and her husband, Ananas Durr, great name by the way, and later his granddaughter, Virginia, who was the first British baby born on American soil. In May 1587, White's colonists sailed for Virginia on the Lion. They were guided by the Portuguese navigator Simon Fernandes, the same pilot who had led the 1585 expedition and who was given by his fellow sailors the unhappy nickname of the Swine. Upon reaching Rono in late July of 1587, Fernandes allowed the colonists to disembark as they wanted to check on the 15 men stationed there, but they refused to let White's people reboard the ship, faced with what amounted to a mutiny by his navigator. White appeared to have backed down. Fernandez did probably earn his nickname amongst the settlers, but he was always the real captain on the voyage. He had the charisma of a real leader, and he was the more experienced and had the de facto control over the ship and its crew. So, now abandoned on the island, this second colony at Roanoke set about repairing the structures left in 1585. They also searched for the 15 men left behind by the previous expedition, but only bones were found. White speculated that these men had been killed in revenge for the previous eradication of a native tribe by Lane. Unfortunately, his speculation became fact when a settler named George Howe, who found himself away from the colony, was surrounded and shot with 16 arrows. From an early stage, there were tensions with the local Algonquin Indians, though initially things went well. White made contact with friendly natives led by Chief Manteu, who explained to him that the Lost 15 had been killed by hostile Secontas, Aquasokok, Dasamongu Ponke warriors. On the 8th of August 1587, Wyatt led the dawn attack on the Dasamongu Ponques that went disastrously wrong. Wyatt and his soldiers entered the Dasamongu Ponque village when it was still dark and mistakenly attacked a group of Hithertu, friendly Indians, killing one and wounding many. 
Henceforth, relationships with the local tribes were steadily deteriorating. By 1587, food supplies began to grow short and the settlers pressed White to return to England because the colony had been deposited in Roanoke rather than the Chesapeake area. Supply ships from England would be ignorant of Fernandez's change of plan and would most likely not land in Roanoke at all and the settlement might not survive the coming winter. White was reluctant to abandon the colony though but eventually he did return to England. Brilliant that, isn't it? Persuaded all these people to go to America, and then, at the first sign of trouble, up sticks and jumps off back to England. Anyway, misfortune struck White's return to England from the beginning. The anchor of the flyboat on which White was quartered could not be raised, and many crew members were severely injured during the attempts. Worse, their journey home was delayed by storms, and many sailors starved or died of scurvy. On the 16th of October 1587, the desperate crew at last landed in Smerwick, in the west of Ireland, and White was finally able to make it back to Southampton. Further bad news awaited White on his return to England. Just two weeks previously, Queen Elizabeth I had issued a general stay of ships, preventing any ships from leaving England's shores again. She wasn't making this easy, was she? but she didn't have a valid reason, and that was the Spanish Armada, because at this point Britain was at war with Spain. White's patron, Sir Walter Raleigh, attempted to provide ships to rescue the colony, but he was overruled by the Queen. In early 1588, White was able to scrape together a pair of small pinnakes, the Brave and the Row, which were unsuitable for military service, and could be spurred for expeditions to Roanoke. Unluckily for White, they were barely suited for the Atlantic crossing, and the governor endured further bad luck on as the ships were intercepted by French pirates. White and the crew escaped to England with their lives, and the journey to Roanoke had to be abandoned. Finally, in March 1590, with the immediate threat of a Spanish invasion now abated, Raleigh was able to equip White's rescue expedition. Two ships, the Hopewell and the Moonlight, set sail for Roanoke. The return journey was prolonged by extensive privateering and several sea battles, and White's eventual landing on the Outer Banks was further impaired by poor weather. The landing was hazardous and was beset by bad conditions and adverse current. Governor White finally reached Roanoke Island on the 18th of August 1590, his granddaughter's third birthday, but found the colony had been largely deserted. The few clues about the colonists whereabouts included the letters C-R-O, which were carved in a tree, and the words Croatoan, carved on a post of the fort. Croatoan was the name of a nearby island, likely modern-day Hatteras Island, and of a local tribe of Native Americans. Roanoke Island was originally not the planned location for the colony, and the idea of moving elsewhere had been discussed. 
Before the governor's departure, he and the colonists had agreed that a message would be carved into a tree if they had moved and would include a large image of a Maltese cross if the decision was made by force. Wyatt found no such cross and was hopeful that his family was still alive. Due to the weather, which grew to be fouler and fouler, Wyatt had abandoned the search of the adjacent island for the colonists. The ship's captain had already lost three anchors and could not afford to the loss of another. Wyatt returned to Plymouth in England on the 24th of October 1590. The loss of the colony was a personal tragedy for Wyatt, of which he never fully recovered. The only clues left behind were the words Croatoan, which sounds ominous until you realise it's the name of a nearby island and the tribe that the settlers were quite friendly with. There are also the letters CRO carved into a tree, which obviously is the start of Croatoan. Is it beyond the realms of possibility that the carver ran out of room? The fact that John White was forced to return to England because the Roanoke colony was starving says to me that life got a little bit too hard and they went to Croatoans. They wrote the words to tell the returning white that they, where they were going. Like when you go to the shop and you write a note to tell your significant other, well you don't now, you, you text, but you know what I mean. The theory that they simply moved on is in force when you know that all the buildings were carefully dismantled. There was also no Maltese cross with any of the carvings as the cross was a pre-decided code of distress. Plus, if there was any thoughts that there was a nefarious reason they left, surely that's put to bed when you think they had time to carve an eight-letter word. Not write, carve an eight-letter word, and another three letters after that. If they had time to do that, then surely they had enough time to carve a cross. There were also other attempts to see if the colonists were still alive, so Walter Raleigh launched an expedition to find them, but the whole thing was shady. You see, the seven years of grace the Queen had given him was up, and there wasn't enough time to set up a new colony. So if they fudged the truth, they could say the colonists were still alive and thriving, so Walter's claim would still be viable. So Walter also tried to get the jump on a business lead in the area and used the hunt as for the lost colonists as a smokescreen so he could put other people off. As time moved on, more attempts were made to find them but it became harder and harder to work out the details. News was subject to time delays, biased and misinformation due to parties spying on each other. We are an amazing species, aren't we? Different parties are looking for the same people, but instead of helping each other, we spy and lie so our group can win. There were also stories of massacres by local tribes, but I would revert back to the carving of, or lack of carving of crosses as evidence against. Also, there were reports of contact with a native tribe of fur-skinned and grey-eyed people and who wore European-style clothes. Now to me, it's preposterous because the time frame wouldn't work out. We're talking at most 10 years here. How much integration could be done in that short amount of time? In 1937, almost 500 years later, another clue popped up near the Chowain River in North Carolina, known as the First Durstone. The First Durstone was a large stone with a message inscribed on it. Just wait, it gets better. The inscription was by none other than Eleanor White Durr. 
Her message, which was addressed to John White, her father, said that the colonists' misfortunes continued after he had left for England. Many of the population had died of sickness, or during wars, and that further massacres which had taken the lives of Eleanor's daughter and husband had whittled their numbers down to seven, and that the rest were buried in a mass grave a few miles east of the river. Interestingly, the references of seven survivors is quite interesting because there were claims by a 17th century writer by the name of William Starchy, who had claimed that the Powhatan tribe had attacked a group of English people and seven managed to escape. The public historians at the time went nuts over this theory, but not, no evidence of a mass grave was ever found. Now maybe this is a cynic in me, but surely to God the stones were forged. It seems too convenient to me. Surely erosion would have rubbed the messages from the stones. Funnily, rewards were offered for similar finds, so naturally thousands of these stones came out of the woodwork, muddying the historical water so to speak, and casting doubt over the whole thing. But in 2011, a major discovery was made which could give credence to the Durst stones. John White, by trade, was a painter, and he had created tons of maps of Virginia and North Carolina. At the time, it was customary that if you made a mistake, instead of starting again, you would cut a small square of canvas, correct your mistake, and stick it over. So it wasn't uncommon for maps to look like a patchwork quilt. For centuries, these maps of White's had been studied until some bright spark said, why don't we remove the corrections to see what, what's underneath the patches to, to confirm that they were mistakes. Turns out that one of these patches covered a star, which in those times symbolised a fort. This fort was 50 miles north of Roanoke, around the area that the Durstone was found. But of course, this is just coincidence, and I get that speculation my dear listeners. But what is if the patch was placed over the fort just in case these maps fell into the wrong hands, like the Spanish for example? This theory has more weight added to it when the correction patch was found to have a cross marked on it in invisible ink. Only a person who was in the inner circle would know about the correction. The 2011 researchers began calling the site Site X. Jesus, I bet you that took them a long time to think of. And as we know, Site X was 50 mile north. John White and the rest of the settlers had spoken about going to the mainland and moving north to better land. But of course, the carvings would have told him that they had gone to Croatoan Island. The researchers then realised that Croatoan Island and the fort were in line with each other on the map. And this was where the Durstone was found. Researchers descended on the Site X. Unfortunately, they haven't found the fort. They have found shards of pottery and metal that are indicative of an English settlement. Well, that was episode 10, The Mystery of Roanoke. Myself, I do find this story interesting, but I find a lot of the theories hard to believe. I honestly think the lost people on the island had decided they couldn't last. So they headed to Croatoan Island and died on the way, whether it be on land due to hunger or on the boats travelling to the island. I mean, the main ships that White came back to America in couldn't get close to the island because of bad weather. Is it beyond the possibility that their boats sank and everybody drowned? 
Anyway, thank you again for listening to this episode. I would greatly appreciate if you could write a review for the podcast on your respective podcast provider. Share with friends and family if you believe they may like it. And if you want to hear more, maybe follow this so you can get the old and new episodes. Dark History has an email you can send your suggestions for episodes too. And we also have a YouTube and TikTok channel. All will be linked in the description below. So, please join me for the next episode. And more Dark History.